Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to episode 87 of the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. After the pandemic started, we saw banks withdrawing thousands of their mortgage deals, including nine in 10 low deposit deals for first time buyers. The estate agents don't want any time wasters right now. Um, They also seem to be really, really busy. So sometimes you'll inquire about a house and you actually won't even hear anything back. People who agreed a sale, went and looked at the property and agreed a sale with a vendor in the full expectation that they would benefit from that stamp duty holiday, just because that whole process is elongated, may not meet the deadline. So we do feel that the case might be building for a short extension. With mortgage deals finally on the rise since the start of the pandemic, this week I'm joined by witch journalists Stephen Maunder and later on Ian Aikman for an in-depth look at the housing market, discussing whether now could be the time for first-time buyers to strike and the schemes available to help them, as well as the latest on the stamp duty cut, house prices and unsafe cladding. We are witch. Anyone looking to buy or remortgage will know the last 12 months have been a roller coaster ride for the housing market. After a shutdown during the first lockdown, the industry bounced back with the stamp duty cut really driving demand. But with that, some say came a rise in house prices. And we'll get onto this and whether the stamp duty holiday might be extended later on. But one group of home buyers have been impacted most. As if it wasn't already hard enough to get on the property ladder, many first time buyers were simply locked out of mortgage deals. Steve, can you talk us through what happened to mortgage offerings in 2020? Uh, Sure. 2020 was the year of the disappearing mortgage and first-time buyers were hardest hit by all of the cuts. Uh, After the pandemic started, we saw banks withdrawing thousands of their mortgage deals, including nine in 10 low deposit deals for first-time buyers. Now, there were two main reasons for this. First of all, two cuts to the base rate in the space of a week in March but real instability and uncertainty for the lenders and resourcing issues caused by the pandemic with swathes of customers asking for payment holidays put them under huge pressure. And when that happens, it tends to be the riskiest loans that get withdrawn. And that's very much why first-time buyers were the biggest victims. But thankfully, lenders are now offering more deals. So can we say things are starting to look a little brighter for low-deposit mortgages? It's definitely become easier for first-time buyers since the turn of the year, but the truth is there's a long, long way to go. In the last couple of months, we've seen lots of banks relaunch their 90% deals, including some of the biggest lenders on the market. 
We've also seen some of the strictest criteria that was introduced during the pandemic being removed. For example, limiting first-time buyers to 25-year terms. The big problem is that rates are still much, much higher than they were before the pandemic, and also that there's no real prospect of 95% mortgages coming back anytime soon. So while there is an improvement for first-time buyers, while it is getting a little easier, we're still a long way from seeing the situation we saw before the pandemic. So let's hear from a first-time buyer. This is Claudia with her experience of the industry across the last few months. We first started looking in a dream vision way sort of about six months ago we would browse online to see what we could get for our money outside of London which is where we're currently based. At that time we didn't know if it was a real possibility that we could buy somewhere if we had enough savings yet so we really didn't know what we you know were aiming for for what we could get and really the pandemic is I guess meant that we're desperate for more space effectively in in short we want more space we want bedrooms not necessarily for people but for office space we both are working from home at the moment and it would be really nice not to work at the kitchen table we're looking to buy outside of London and that's enabled us to travel and give us a legitimate reason to kind of go away and get away from London and um, do some viewings in another city, which we've really enjoyed. The homeowner has never been at the property. There's obviously a lot more restrictions on you doing the viewings. From a more negative perspective, the estate agents don't want any time wasters right now. Um, They also seem to be really, really busy. So sometimes you'll inquire about a house and you actually won't even hear anything back. Or um, if it's a particularly desirable house in a good area, it will go really quickly. And obviously, as people that are looking to move out of London, we we can't really get to viewings after work. It's all um, done at the weekend. The property prices also seem to be a bit higher. I've got friends in Nottingham that are really struggling to buy they're first-time buyers and have put multiple offers in and it's really competitive. Claudia raises the point that the market is very competitive at the moment and the knock-on effect this has had on estate agents. And this will no doubt apply to the other people involved like conveyances and mortgage brokers. We also had a tweet on this from Nick saying, we agreed the sale before lockdown, hung on waiting, expecting something to go wrong, had to sell and move back in with parents go into storage whilst we waited for the chain. Steve, is the house buying process slower and more difficult at the moment across the board? Uh, Yes, 100%. It's really been a perfect storm of circumstances in the last few months. There was always likely to be a release of pent-up demand after the first lockdown last year. So you had the people who were already thinking of moving home, and then you had the ones who decided they wanted to move home during the lockdown because either their property or in some cases the people they were sharing it with wasn't what they thought was right for them in the long term. You then throw in the stamp duty holiday in July and we've seen a huge spike of activity caused by that. And all of this put together has particularly affected the legal sector with conveyances facing huge backlogs and moves grinding to a halt. Ultimately, this has led to some of the biggest players in the industry basically begging the government to extend the stamp duty cut to prevent deals falling through at the end of March. 
So as you mentioned there, the Stamp Duty Cup, which is due to end at the end of March, has played a huge role in accelerating the market. But could this be extended? Well, another deadline has recently been extended by the government, and that's for the Help to Buy scheme. Before we talk about whether this could be setting the scene for stamp duty, Steve, what's the Help to Buy and why has it been extended? Uh, The Help to Buy scheme has been running since 2013, and it allows people to get an equity loan off the government to help them buy a new build property. This equity loan makes it easier for them to get on the housing ladder with a 5% deposit. The big problem at the moment, though, is that people who are in the process of buying a home using help to buy were scared about their deals falling through because of huge build delays caused by the pandemic. Uh, The BBC did some research on this and found there were 16,000 people who had put down the holding deposit for their help to buy home, but not yet completed on it. So the government has now said that if you're in that process, and you've got that far down the line, you'll now have until the end of May to complete the transaction. And this is the third time that deadline has been extended since the start of the pandemic. I actually used the Help to Buy scheme to buy my flat. And without it, we wouldn't have been able to buy when we did or in the area I'm in, in East London. So I've personally really felt the value in this scheme. But it's not the only one out there, and it is soon to be replaced by a new version. So what will this look like, and what other options are available for first-time buyers? So from April, Help to Buy is going to be reformed uh, by the government. It's been a very successful scheme in helping first-time buyers onto the property ladder. There's no doubt about that, but it has faced some criticism over the years about rising house prices and whether the scheme has caused major house price inflation. With that in mind, the government is now going to limit it to first-time buyers only from April and bring in price caps that set the maximum cost the property can be in each region of England. Now, this will theoretically stop prices of homes sold using the scheme from skyrocketing in the future, but it might also affect uptake from builders, who will obviously be facing getting smaller profits from selling homes using help to buy. In terms of the other options, as we mentioned, 90% mortgages are very much back, but they're expensive. Shared ownership schemes are still running, but they can also be quite expensive once you look at the cumulative costs, and some will be tied up in the current cladding situation. So what I would say is if you can't get hold of a 10% deposit or more, it might be worth thinking outside the box a little. For example, there are some interesting guarantor mortgages out there at the moment some of which will allow your parents to help you onto the ladder, even if they don't have big savings. And the pressures at the moment and the difficulties with deposits means banks are innovating all the time to find ways to help first-time buyers. So while a guarantor mortgage won't necessarily be right for everyone, it's certainly worth a look when you're assessing your options. We are which. And now for the big question on stamp duty. There are tens of thousands of buyers hoping for an extension, but is it likely? We've been speaking to Gronya Gilmore, Zoopla's head of research, to find out more. What we have calculated is because it's so busy, the time it's taking to actually get all that legal work done to get from a sale agreed to a sale complete is actually getting longer. So people who agreed a sale, went and looked at the property and agreed a sale with a vendor in the full expectation that they would benefit from that stamp duty holiday, just because that whole process is elongated, may not meet the deadline. So we do feel that the case might be building for a short extension. We could see maybe if you've exchanged on your sale but not yet completed, 
maybe you might um, be able to carry on and take advantage of the stamp duty holiday or even just a couple of weeks extension could mean that tens of thousands of people benefit from the stamp duty holiday who are currently set to miss out. Last week, The Telegraph reported that Rishi Sunak is considering extending the tax holiday. Steve, do you think it's likely? And has there been any indication of when an announcement could be made either way? Well, this is the question I'm asked more than any other at the moment. And the truth is, we just don't definitively know what's going to happen after the end of March. The government has so far been very reluctant to kick the can down the road by extending the break for everyone. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if it did relent to a degree before the budget in March. What might happen is you might see the government tapering the holiday, allowing people who've either already agreed the sale or those who've already exchanged their contracts a little more time to get the transaction done. The rumours right now are of a six-week extension, but it's really important to stress they are just rumours. But I suspect we might hear more either way before that budget in early March. Now, with the stamp duty holiday deadline looming, how will this coming to an end affect house prices? Here's Gronya from Zoopla again with what they're predicting for the next 12 months. What we might see throughout the course of the year is a slight easing in the level of house price growth that we've got. So we've talked about those really busy pipelines because of the stamp duty holiday. And what we saw after in during the course of the first lockdown and the second lockdown and the current lockdown, big rises in demand for homes. And that is not just the stamp duty holiday. That's also been um, really motivated by people spending a lot longer in their homes. We may see through the course of 2021, we expect sales to continue. We expect people still to be motivated about changing working practices. They don't have to go to the office so often. They can live somewhere else. And so it will um, prompt a lot of people to continue making those moves. But as the economy the economic landscape just becomes a little bit cloudier in 2021 uh, and the wider ramifications of lockdown become clear, we could just see slight easing in the level of price growth that we've got at the moment. So we're currently at about a four-year high, 4.3%, and we could see that easing to about 1% growth by the end of 2021. Gronier says house prices have risen by 4.3%, which may sound high given the economic fallout from the pandemic. But just yesterday, the BBC published an article saying house prices have risen by an even greater amount of 8.5% in 2020, which is according to the Office for National Statistics. Steve, how does this growth vary across the country? And is it generally thought that it will slow down after the stamp duty cut? Well, house prices are always such a hot topic. And the truth is, it really depends where you're buying and selling and what type of property. So what I would say at the moment is it's interesting that the variation is more about the type of property than the location in some cases. Since the pandemic started, people have really started looking for bigger homes. And there was some new data from Halifax just this week showing that the average prices of detached houses are rising much more quickly than any other type of property. Now, that said, the London exodus is a thing. Uh, We've seen lots of people kind of looking for properties in the country, albeit still within commutable distance to London, if they do have to come into the office once or twice a week in the future. Now, in terms of house prices themselves, I think the stamp duty cut has resulted in house prices inflating, certainly around those markets where people stand to make the biggest tax savings. 
And I think that means we will see people offer less when they're buying properties after the cut ends. But to be honest, it really does depend on the area that you live in, the type of property you're buying. And with the coronavirus still ongoing, it's really anyone's guess what's going to happen in the rest of the year. Thank you, Steve. Now, to finish this week, I'm also joined by witch journalist Ian Aikman to talk about the big cladding story that broke last week. Ian, you did a special episode on the unsafe cladding scandal back in December. Can you talk us through what's been going on since then? Yeah, so in December, we heard from several leaseholders living in unsafe flats who are worried on the one hand about their buildings being at risk of fire and on the other about the risk of bankruptcy and even homelessness due to the huge bills they're facing to fix them. And that's episode 79, if you want to give that a listen. At the time, the government told us it would announce more help for leaseholders facing these bills, and that announcement came last week. So tell us, what was in that announcement? So the main headline of the announcement was £3.5 billion being added to the existing building safety fund. This is a fund to remove unsafe cladding from buildings over 18 metres, And then for some buildings under 18 metres, a new kind of loan scheme has been announced, which means leaseholders will pay at most £50 a month to remove their cladding. And how has this been received? Is it going to be enough? The expectations for this announcement from the leaseholders that I've spoken to, at least, were frankly not very high. Uh, Affected leaseholders generally think the government has been unable or even unwilling to grasp the full scale of the problem they're facing. And quite frankly, this announcement hasn't given them a reason to think differently. Even just looking from an objective standpoint, you can quite easily say that this funding won't be enough to fix the whole problem. If you live in a building over 18 meters, you might now be be able to get funding to pay for your cladding removal. Uh, But while you wait for that cladding to be removed, you could still face huge bills for waking watches, so that's guards patrolling your building for signs of fire, and you may also still face astronomical buildings insurance costs. Uh, In some cases, we've seen that premiums have risen by over a thousand percent when unsafe cladding has been found, and the leaseholders we've spoken to, they just can't afford to pay for these things. The funding also doesn't apply for fire safety defects that are not cladding. So things like missing cavity barriers, which are really common uh, for the leaseholders we've spoken to, there's no funding for that. And then there's the not insignificant number of leaseholders living in buildings under 18 meters. So not only could they have waking watches or insurance costs to worry about, but the 50 pound a month bills to pay for cladding removal are, are kind of a strange, a strange idea because some leaseholders have been told it'll cost them £50,000 to remove the cladding. So if you're paying that off at £50 a month, that'll take nearly 100 years. So you'd die before you actually paid it off. And it's raised questions about how you'd be able to sell a flat if there is this £50 a month, so you know £600 a year loan attached to it. So unfortunately, there are still a lot of unanswered questions here. And earlier this week, we caught up with Jenny Garrett from the End Our Cladding Scandal campaign, who gave us the following statement. The government promised us no leaseholder would have to pay to make their home safe. Today, we feel betrayed. We were hoping for a solution to stop the sleepless nights. And for millions living in buildings less than 80 metres, there has been none. Robert Jenrick needs to get a grip on the cladding crisis. Loans longer than mortgage terms for millions and not even enough to cover the cost of making the buildings that the government considers the most high risk safe. 
Taxpayers and leaseholders are left to foot the bill for billions of pounds, whilst the largest developers, who have made over £10 billion in profit since the Grenfell fire, are let off lightly. Many people living in buildings under 18 metres will still have to bear the cost, for many above £30,000, saddled with debt around their necks for 30 years. Where is the money for missing fire breaks, alarms, or for cladding on buildings under 18 metres? Leaseholders are the victims of this crisis and have done nothing wrong to deserve this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Witch Money Podcast. If you've got a comment or question on anything we've mentioned today, please let us know in the comments wherever you're listening to the podcast or on social media at Witch Money. For more on the latest personal finance news and advice, visit witch.co.uk forward slash money. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was produced and edited by Rob Lilly with additional support from Ian Aikman and Kim Carver. Thank you.